Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Monday, January 23rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Looking first at today's weather forecast, this comes from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Some fog possible early. Mix of sun and clouds likely. Watch for areas of fog across eastern Iowa early this morning. While there have been a few spots reporting locally dense fog, much of this fog is light to moderate and should affect the area through mid-morning before lifting. Highs today will be a bit of a struggle, even with some clearing later this morning. Plan on highs into the upper 20s to lower 30s before the next cloud bank arrives later this afternoon. There are a number of systems worth watching this week, with the first one arriving Wednesday morning. These snow showers may produce minor accumulation, with a second bout of minor accumulation possible Wednesday night into Thursday morning. A second system is possible Friday, with a minor accumulation again possible. This weekend, colder air is likely, along with more snow chances. Let's look at what the front page has to offer today. Articles include CNH UAW Reach Deal and the Strike Ends. Urbandale Teen is Disc Golf Rising Star. Bill Let's Miners Serve Alcohol at Restaurants. And we'll begin reading the top story, Lawmakers Tackle Cyber Threats. This story was filed by the Courier's Caleb McCullough. Cybersecurity is the focus of bills in the legislature. Dateline Des Moines. Cybersecurity is the focus of a slate of bills in the Iowa legislature as lawmakers hope to provide resources to schools, local governments, and other entities to respond to cyber attacks. A new technology committee in the Senate was formed this year, and the House's technology committee is considering bills criminalizing ransomware, creating a cybersecurity unit in state government, and seeking to develop cybersecurity professionals in the state, among other things. Cyber attacks, attempts to access, damage, or destroy a computer system, have been on the rise in the past year. Attacks increased by 28% globally in the third quarter of 2022, according to Checkpoint, a cybersecurity company. Schools, healthcare settings, banking, and utilities are common targets of cyber attacks, according to Checkpoint. Chris Cornoyer, a Republican from Leclerc, who chairs the new Senate Technology Committee, said she wants to look at finding measures that will arm schools and local governments with the tools to defend against attacks. Quote, it's really important that we pay attention to it at the state level, she said, and make sure that we're providing the Iowa Chief Information Officer the resources that he needs to go out and support those local governments. When it comes to private sector, Cornor said she wants to address technology concerns without hamstringing business ability to function. Quote, I want to be able to responsibly use technology to protect the rights of our citizens, the privacy of our citizens, without tying the hands of our business and technology sector, she said. Quote, because we want to continue to attract business and tech in the state, unquote. J.D. Sultan, a Democrat from Sioux City that sits on the House Economic Growth and Technology Committee, 
said he hopes the committee passes legislation that is flexible and can react to the rapid pace of technology challenges government is facing. Some of the bills are 10 years too late, he said. Quote, what I don't want is to have this as a bill that we see in several other areas where we're trying to adjust things from 1992 legislation, he said. Quote, technology is going to be ever-evolving, and we need to make sure that we keep up with the times. In a presentation to the Senate Technology Committee last week, two security experts said, while Iowa is in a relatively strong position on cybersecurity, challenges exist with collaboration between the public and the private sectors. Both private industry and the public sector struggle with finding people with the expertise to respond to their needs. Doug Jacobson, the director of Iowa State University's Cybersecurity Center, told the committee, communication between the two areas also could be improved, and private businesses aren't always granted access to the same information as governments, he said. Smaller organizations can also have a difficult time getting funding or accessing resources during a cyber attack, said Aaron Warner, who runs Iowa City-based cybersecurity firm ProCircular. Quote, those FBI case agencies carry 30 cases. Probably a million dollars is an average amount of ransomware that they're dealing with. So that small accounting firm in Clorinda is going to have great difficulty getting access to those cybersecurity resources, he said. One bill passed out of a subcommittee last week would make it a crime to launch a ransomware attack punishable by up to a Class C felony, ransomware, a type of software that disables a computer system until a sum of money is paid, is not currently a crime in Iowa, and advocates said it's an important first step in adding protections for businesses and government organizations. Major school districts were disrupted in ransomware attacks last year. The Cedar Rapids School District paid a ransom after suffering a cyber attack last summer, though it did not disclose the amount paid. A hacker group claimed to have stolen troves of data from the Davenport district, and a spokesperson said the hackers demanded a ransom, but it was not paid. Sheila King, the chief information officer for Central Iowa's Heartland Area Education Agency, said schools are among the top target for ransomware attacks. Quote, having penalties for violators seems like a reasonable thing, she said. We see this as a top issue for the education community. Molly Ross, a vice president of operations for the Technology Association of Iowa, said the bill is a good start for protecting Iowa businesses as well. Ransomware is a crime on the federal level, but attacks often come from international sources and prosecution is difficult. Still, Ross said, the law could act as a hindrance from someone building ransomware or launching an attack in Iowa. Quote, anything we can do to help prevent those attacks from happening in the first place is a good start, she said. Right now, ransomware is technically legal in Iowa, which is pretty outrageous. I think everyone would agree. Some other states have made it illegal for government organizations to pay a ransom after suffering a ransomware attack, but Warner urged lawmakers not to limit options for responding to attacks. 
quote, it's not a time to be taking options off the table, particularly if you're a school district that has students that start tomorrow, and in order to make that happen, you have to pay a ransom, he said. Another bill that cleared a subcommittee would create a cybersecurity unit within the state office of the chief information officer, which would collect data and report on cybersecurity breaches in the state. That bill received some pushback from lobbyists for local governments and utilities during a subcommittee meeting last week over concerns that it would limit their ability to react to a cyber attack and would require the reporting of confidential data. The terms of the bill give broad reporting requirements to government entities that experience a cyber attack, requiring them to report the date of the incident, the date it was discovered, what data were accessed or obtained, a list of agencies that will be notified, and additional information to the extent available. Doug Strux, a lobbyist for the city of Des Moines, said he was concerned other provisions of the bill would give the OCIO too broad authority over how local entities can respond to cyber attacks. Quote, when you read this in its entirety, it appears to be giving the cybersecurity unit the ability to manage and coordinate a response of a political subdivision to a cybersecurity event, he said. The Area Education Agency of Iowa are registered in favor of the bill. King said it would create a support system for public entities in responding to attacks. Quote, any time in our public system that we can add expertise or structure to supporting cybersecurity, it seems that this is a reasonable approach and could be a good thing, she said. Another bill, which is receiving a subcommittee next week, would require cities and counties to protect against cyber attacks as part of their legally defined essential purposes. The bill would allow counties broader freedom to spend public funds on cybersecurity without requiring a public vote to take on debt, said Lucas Beenkin, public policy specialist for the Iowa State Association of Counties. Quote, we think that's very important because of the timeliness of making those investments if they're necessary, he said. Not having to wait for approval next election, special election, whatever the case may be. Sometimes these things need to happen quickly, unquote. A cybersecurity simulation training center would be established at Iowa State University under another bill being considered in the House, dubbed SciSim for short. The center is proposed to be a cyber sports complex that could train students using simulation challenges and scrimmages to respond to cyber attacks, according to the ISU website. It would also be a resource for businesses, state agencies, and other government bodies, according to the bill. Werner said he was excited about the program because it would train cybersecurity experts that could fill the need across the state. Quote, every single person in this program is a potential employee resident in the state of Iowa, Werner said. They're all very highly compensated because they're in huge demand. They're exactly the kind of people we want to recruit here in the state of Iowa, unquote. Here, the courier includes a photograph of a group of bicyclists all wearing protective gear, and it's a winter scene with snow on the ground and in the trees. 
and all the bikes have those fat tires, and the title is Fat and Happy. Riders enter the trail to start the Iowa Games Fat Bike Race held at George Wyeth State Park on Saturday. 30 cyclists took part in the race, running in either 30-minute beginner's course or a 60-minute experienced course. Our next article is the one about the CNH Industrial Workers' Strike, and it was filed by the Associated Press business writer Josh Funk, titled, CNH Industrial Workers on Strike Since May May Approve New Deal. More than 1,000 CNH industrial workers who have been on strike since last May approved a new contract Saturday with the maker of tractors, bulldozers, backhoes, and other heavy equipment. The United Auto Workers said union members in Racine, Wisconsin, and Burlington, Iowa, approved the deal two weeks after they rejected an earlier agreement. The union didn't disclose any details of what is included in the contract. A spokeswoman for CNH Industrial didn't immediately respond Sunday to questions about the new agreement. Previously, the company said the last offer that workers rejected included raises of 28% to 38% over four years. Quote, this agreement reflects the efforts of a determined bargaining team and members being on an almost nine-month strike, UAW President Ray Curry said in a statement. Throughout the strike, workers fought for raises that would help cover soaring inflation and wouldn't be consumed by increases in health insurance costs. Before the walkout started last May 2nd, workers rejected a deal with 18.5% raises because of those concerns. Quote, our negotiators tenaciously bargained to the very end, even fighting for contract improvements in the face of threats from CNHI to hire permanent strike replacements. UAW Vice President Chuck Browning said, Combined with the incredible support from our members, it's remarkable what had to be endured to achieve this contract, unquote. With more than 37,000 employees worldwide, CNH Industrial has continued to produce construction and agricultural equipment throughout the strike and worked to keep its Wisconsin and Iowa plants running. The company, which is based in the United Kingdom, said its third quarter profits jumped 22% to $559 million. It is set to release its next earnings report in early February. The CNH strike was one of the longest ones in the recent spate of strikes since the pandemic. Workers at a variety of companies have been demanding and getting significant raises and better benefits amid widespread worker shortages. New unions have been established at Starbucks stores and Amazon warehouses, although some locations have rejected unions. More than 10,000 Deere & Company workers secured 10% raises and improved benefits after their month-long strike in 2021 at another agricultural equipment maker. In one of the largest profile labor disputes of the past year, more than 100,000 railroad workers received 24% raises and $5,000 in bonuses in a five-year deal after Congress stepped in and blocked a potential strike because of fears about the economic consequences. Even with the big raises, many rail workers remain frustrated with the deal that was imposed on them 
because it didn't resolve their quality-of-life concerns about demanding schedules and lack of paid sick time. Next, a new bill would allow minors to serve alcohol at Iowa restaurants, story filed by Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau, and it begins with a photograph of the west exterior of the Capitol building, Dateline Des Moines. A three-member subcommittee of Iowa House lawmakers this week advanced a bill that would allow Iowa restaurant workers under the age of 18 to serve alcohol. House File 14, filed by Representative John Willis, a Republican from Spirit Lake, eliminates the age for serving or selling alcohol in taverns and restaurants. The bill removes the age restriction for all retail establishments licensed to sell alcohol for on-premise consumption. Wills, however, said it's not his intent to lower the age for serving or selling alcohol in bars and taverns from 18. Quote, it's kind of a silly law that we have that minors cannot carry drinks from the bar to the table, Wills said. Quote, but if they don't drink that drink, the minor can pick up that full drink and bring it back to the kitchen to dispose of it. It's a workforce issue because restaurants that serve alcohol can't hire minors because they can only do part of the job, unquote. The Iowa Restaurant Association and Iowa Hotel and Lodging Association support the bill. David Adelman, a lobbyist who represents the Iowa Travel Industry Partners, said the bill addresses workforce issues with Iowa's hospitality and tourism industry. Many small businesses are having a hard time finding workers. Allowing teens under the age of 18 to serve or sell alcohol would give restaurants more options amid staffing shortages, he said. Quote, we believe it can be done in a responsible manner, Adelman said. Representative John Forbes, a Democrat from Urbandale, said he's concerned about having teens as young as 14 or 15 serving alcohol as opposed to adults, and he questioned the liability and insurance issues that arise for businesses, particularly if they serve someone underage. Quote, the pressure being put on an individual like that, there could be pressure from an individual to maybe try to get them to serve them underage, Forbes said, adding, children serving alcohol, in my mind, sends the wrong message, unquote. Representative Shannon Lundgren, Republican from Piasta, who co-owns a bar and grill, agreed that the bill, as written, is too broad and vague, but advanced the bill to continue the discussion and work on it in committee. I think there are some things we can do to help with the workforce shortage, Lundgren said, noting her children grew up working in the family's restaurant, but couldn't take an open bottle of beer over to a table. Quote, I think we do have training that is available through many resources that, you know, we could hold those children who decided and parents who decided to allow them to work in this industry accountable, she said, and make sure that there is supervision, which really isn't really spelled out here. I certainly wouldn't hire a 14-year-old to serve drinks, unquote. The next story is titled, Urbandale Teen is Disc Golf Rising Star. Gannon Burr earned nearly $90,000 in 2022. Story filed by Tommy Birch of the Des Moines Register. Dateline Urbandale. The sun was starting to set on a warm November day as Gannon Burr walked off the disc golf course at Urbandale's Waterford Park. 
Burr stops when a man walking a dog notices him. Quote, Great season this year, the man yells to Burr, who was out trying some new discs. He didn't know the fan, but these interactions on the disc golf course are common for Burr, one of the sport's top players in the world. He can stroll in and out of most places around Iowa and go unrecognized, but the second he steps on the course, it seems everyone knows him. Quote, it's cool to a certain extent, Burr told the Des Moines Register. Sometimes I want to go out and practice myself and tune the world out, unquote. At age 17, the Urbandale resident and Waukee Northwest High School student racked up nearly $90,000 in prize money in 2022 and tallied a victory in one of the sport's top events. After quickly rising to fame, he could be even better next year. Quote, I think it'll be very big because people are looking for him to prove that he is actually that good. And it wasn't just a fluke, said disc golf star Will Shusterick. Burr played flag football and was a pitcher in baseball, tried basketball, and even played golf with a regular club and a small ball. But none of those sports stuck with him. Disc golf did. He got into it when he was around nine years old by using a disc golf basket in his neighbor's yard. Disc golf offered him something most of the other sports didn't. Burr had complete control of his results and didn't need to rely on teammates to get him the ball, force a stop, or make a big play. Burr was the entire team. The sport requires participants to throw discs smaller than frisbees into a basket in as few tries as possible. It requires precision, focus, and coordination, but it's also accessible to people of all ages and many physical abilities, and it has become increasingly popular. According to UDISC, which helps players find the often free courses, the number of courses in the U.S. has grown from a few hundred a few decades ago to more than 9,000 today. Travel Iowa says the state has more than 300 courses and nearly 100 tournaments, making it potentially the amateur disc golf capital of the world, unquote. Burr traded his junior golf clubs for golf discs and baskets. He arranged a set in the backyard of his family's Urbandale home. Quote, we lived on like a park. There was a lot of room to throw everywhere, Burr said. Burr played as often as he could, even if there was a foot of snow on the ground. He learned forms of it and techniques by watching YouTube videos of some of the sport's biggest players. His favorite was Shusterick, now a three-time United States Disc Golf Championship winner. Burr said his mother, Michelle Nesham, followed Shusterick around at a tournament so Burr, who was around 10 years old, could watch the star play. He made an impression on Shusterick, who posed for a picture with Burr and gave him a disc. Quote, I wasn't even playing well. But after every shot, he would clap, Shusterick said. Burr competed in his first tournament in June of 2015. Later that year, he won his first victory at Maytag Park in Newton. The prize was $70 that he could use to purchase discs. He bought four and kept playing. Burr put up a new net in his basement to practice throws and basket to improve his putting. As he got better, he competed more. Tournaments across the country became family vacations. Quote, 
All of our time has been spent at disc golf tournaments, his mother said. By 2017, Burr won the 2017 PDGA, that's Professional Disc Golf Association, Amateur and Junior Disc Golf World Championship. The following year, he tallied eight wins. In 2019, he added another PDGA Junior Disc Golf World Championship and finished the year with seven victories. Bird joined the Disc Golf Pro Tour, the highest level of competition, in 2021. In October of 2022, he won one of the sport's most prestigious events, the United States Disc Golf Championship. Burr, who had turned 17 just five months earlier, became the youngest player to win the event and earned a $25,000 payout. It's been within the last couple of years that I thought, you know, I think this could actually go somewhere, Nisham said. At the same time, he's still a student at Waukee Northwest. He said teachers have been accommodating about his schedule, letting him miss as much time as he needs, as long as he keeps up on his schoolwork. It's not always easy. According to a write-up of his championship victory on United States Disc Golf Championships website, he said he was very behind on schoolwork at the time. He's had precious little time for other typical teenage pursuits. Burr has yet to buy a car. Because of his hectic schedule, he hasn't even gotten his license yet. Fans treat him like a celebrity at tournaments, his mother said. Quote, they have set up areas for autographs and things like that after the tournament, Nisham said. When he's walking around the area, he gets a lot of people coming up to him, a lot of little kids and some other people, and it's really kind of all ages. So it's pretty cool, unquote. Burr, who has won 24 events and as of late November had accumulated $106,869 in career earnings. He believes he reached the $100,000 plateau faster than any player in the history of the sport. That doesn't include the money he receives in endorsement deals from his five sponsors who pay him to wear their clothing or throw their discs. Burr has also become a social media star, with more than 31,000 followers on his Instagram account. The account is full of videos of Burr hurling discs and working on his game. Quote, Dude, you killed this season. You knew it was coming. You've got a long, successful career ahead of you. To be where you are at the age you are is a gift. Keep having fun. Enjoy the ride, one person wrote to Burr on an Instagram post. Burr says the money is nice and the fame is interesting, but it's not what drives him. Most of his earnings have gone into the bank, he said. He hasn't splurged on any big purchases. He bought some nice shoes and some Lego sets, he said. What's important to Burr is getting better. Paul Macbeth is our Tiger Woods of disc golf, said disc golf player Gavin Babcock. But he said of Burr, He's definitely got the potential to overtake that title, unquote. Burr does not plan to go to college. He's found his career. Quote, people are expecting a lot, Burr said, but I think I'll be even better, unquote. And now when we turn the page, we find we're at the Courier's regular Monday feature, Northeast Iowa Area Escapades. Here are just a few of the events and goings-on worth checking out this week in the Northeast Iowa area. On Saturday, January 28th, and Sunday, January 29th, UNI Wrestling Team on the Mat. 
the University of Northern Iowa wrestlers, will wrangle with Oklahoma State University wrestlers on Saturday. The match begins at 7 p.m. Saturday at the McLeod Center, 2501 Hudson Road in Cedar Falls, and runs until 10 p.m. On Sunday, wrestling matches will begin at 2 p.m. Tickets are available at tickets at uni.com or at the door. Also on Saturday, January 28th, raise your pinky finger. On Saturday, kids can bring their best manners to the Grout Museum District's themed tea party. A, quote, super secret spy tea party will take place from 10 a.m. to noon at Snowden House, 306 Washington Street, Waterloo. Pre-registration is required today. Space is still available at www.groutmuseumdistrict.org. Kids will learn to decode super-secret messages and create disguises. Children must be accompanied by an adult. Cost is $12 each. Grout members receive a discount. Next, on Friday, January 27th through Sunday, January 29th, Iowa Boat Show returns to Cedar Falls. Iowa's Boat RV and Vacation Show returns to the Unidome on the University of Northern Iowa campus Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. TV's James Lindner and Jeremy Smith also are returning by popular demand to answer questions on how to make you a better fisherman. They'll also share tips, tricks, and techniques they've learned from other pros and being on the water every day. The public will find the largest indoor display of boats, RVs, all-terrain vehicles, and hot tubs, as well as hunting, fishing, and vacation resorts, and more. Hours are 3 to 7 o'clock p.m. on Friday, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Saturday, and 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Sunday. Seminars include walleye tricks, night fishing, trolling tactics, imaging, and a drop shot fishing for panfish. On Saturday, the first 50 kids get a free fishing pole. Kids can also experience the casting tank and take advantage of youth fishing workshops. You can explore and educate yourself on hunting, fishing, and vacation resorts and find deals you won't find anywhere else. Admission is $7 in advance at www.iowasportsshows.com and $10 at the door. On Saturday, January 28th, Percussion Concert for Youth. Quote, Music Lab Percussion takes place at 10 a.m. Saturday in the lobby of the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center at 8201 Dakota Street in Cedar Falls. Formerly known as Lollipop Concerts, the Music Lab will feature the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra's Percussion Ensemble. The instrument Petting Zoo will be available for musical exploration immediately following the performance. For ticket information, go to www.wcfsymphony.org. And lastly, on Sunday, January 29th, Classic Albums Live Pink Floyd at GBAC. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon is considered one of the greatest albums of all time. It was released on March 1st, 1973, charted for more than 900 weeks, and sold an estimated 45 million copies worldwide. Fans can relive the success with the Classic Album's live concert at 7 p.m. Sunday at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center 
on the University of Northern Iowa campus in Cedar Falls, critically acclaimed cover experts, Classic Albums Live, tackle this groundbreaking album in its entirety, note for note, including mega-hits Money, Us, and Them, and The Great Gig in the Sky. Tickets start at $25 and are available online at tickets at uni.edu, at the GBPAC box office, or by calling 877-549-7469. And now at this time, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 23rd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, since today's paper doesn't have any obituaries listed, we'll turn now to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot and the editor Art Cullen, titled, Iowa Should Be the Leader in Cultured Meat, a changing climate driving epic drought and disease running head-on with exploding world demand require alternative and complementary forms of protein to traditional meat. We've been following the development of cultivated or cultured meat for some time. Scientists are able to produce actual meat from the cells of livestock that does not require feeding the beast. It's a game-changer in a world that sees hog high-rises 26 stories high going up in China to sate the nearly insatiable taste for pork. If only pigs could fly. We cannot sustain that sort of production. So it is fascinating that entrepreneurs growing meat in a lab have received approval from the Food and Drug Administration to build the first cultured meat production facility out west. It has also been approved in Singapore. Chefs say the chicken tastes like chicken. The manufacturing process can make real eggs supplemented with omega-3 without bothering a hen. This is not some fantastical dream. Tyson is investing. So is Whole Foods. Real money knows where the future leads, and it is not yet larger concentrations of livestock in search of scarcer and costlier water, even in the upper Midwest. Cultured meat is said to use one-fifteenth the natural resources than raising a chicken in a barn. If you want a ribeye, you will get it from a steer on the hoof. But if you want chicken strip, you wouldn't know the difference between foghorn leghorn's cellular progeny and the big-breasted rooster himself. That upsets the honey wagon. Many livestock producers are suspicious. Those are not burgers made from soybeans. They are real beef made from cellular cultures. Many food processing workers might bear the same skepticism. Before the propaganda sets in, this nascent industry, currently clustered near research hubs, would do well to plant their production facilities in isolated meatpacking towns like Storm Lake. People are more amenable to the idea of growing pork in a vat if you're not threatening their livelihood in the existing production model. Cultured meat could replace a significant share of the meat supply in coming decades. Nobody knows by how much, really, until production ramps up and prices come down by two-thirds. Limiting the livestock footprint through supplemental protein production will be good for Iowa if we are cut in on the game. It could help rebirth an independent livestock industry 
where a premium is placed on quality and sustainability over sheer tonnage and where profit stays on the farm. It could reduce demands on our regional water supply. It could promote more grass and grazing near rivers. Somebody has to cultivate the meat. It should be us, but it's not yet. There are other alternative proteins grown from fermenting a starch base, corn or spuds, for example, that complement meat products. A company from Chicago says it soon will open a facility in Iowa, about two hours from Storm Lake. That spells Ames, not Denison, not Columbus Junction. The alternative protein industry is springing up and scouting sites. Iowa is the nation's leading meat and egg producer. We need to have both feet in the game to protect our economy. We can't wish it away and shouldn't. It is new economic activity that could allow our agriculture to find a better balance with our natural resource base. The alternative protein industry can't do it if rural America gets left behind again. Look at the hurdles that renewable energy development face in rural areas because we perceive that we are not getting cut in on profits. That's why right-of-way is becoming more contentious. What's in it for us? You want a pipeline by taking my property. That's how rural people often perceive things, because that's the way it so often works out. Wall Street put the independent pork producers on the kill line. The industry needs to answer through real investment in rural America. Ultimately, alternative proteins and renewable energy mean that the enterprise can go on. That's what's in it for us. What's in it for the California investors? They need to show that their product can succeed in northwest Iowa. If it were us, we would locate the first facilities in Storm Lake, Sioux Center, and Sioux City. We already have a good understanding of this stuff. The infrastructure is in place. The essential ingredients are here. The facilities are not. That will be a problem going forward as the industry seeks public acceptance. Without it, there are too many hungry mouths to feed in an increasingly hungry world, daunted by drought and thirsty for potable water. That's why it should start here. The next editorial is titled, Response to Proposed Don't Say Gay Legislation in Iowa. This comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot. Iowa has a history of saying gay before others. In 2009, Iowa became just the third state in the nation to recognize gay marriage as a legal right according to its state Supreme Court decision, Varnum v. Bryan. So we Iowans not only can say gay, but most of us understand that doing so makes us stronger as a community. Simply put, words matter. They determine the ways in which we can connect with others and clearly indicate where we diverge. Such awareness ensures our ability to make decisions that impact our individual health, safety, and engagement with the broader world. Conversely, for government to either silence speech or compel it is not only unconstitutional, but also undermines the very fabric of American society. Unfortunately, as history has long shown us, governments seem unable to resist trying. Why? Because if successful, the silencers remain in power. It should come as no surprise that Republican Iowa legislators, emboldened by midterm wins and GOP Governor Kim Reynolds' rising national star, 
feel they have a blank check to focus their agenda on pandering to the extreme element of the conservative base by targeting LGBTQ plus Iowans. Under the cynical guise of defending parental rights, Iowa legislators are attempting to follow the lead of Florida's Don't Say Gay law enacted in March of 2022 that prohibits classroom discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity in the state's public schools. Those conservative coattails look like Iowa HF7, HF8, and HF9, respectively, in classic overreach. Iowa House File 7 seeks to limit speech on its public college campuses by, among other things, imposing onerous reporting requirements on how universities teach about social justice, including, but not limited to, LGBTQ plus issues. Under the proposal, public schools would be required to, quote, report with specificity on how a long list of concepts such as teaching with humanizing orientation, peace building, teaching for prejudice reduction, and anti-oppressive literature, among many others, are used in the classroom. Such burdensome reporting requirements will naturally chill free speech and limit academic preparation for Iowa's future teachers, who will undoubtedly grapple with, and now be less prepared for, complex equity issues in the classroom as professionals. A more focused targeting of LGBTQ plus Iowans can be found in House Files 8 and 9. Given the recent efforts by some to remove books from school libraries or curricula that address gender identity issues, it naturally follows that the GOP legislators are seeking to capitalize on false claims of sexual grooming by prohibiting instruction relating to gender identity and sexual orientation with HF8. This proposal will prohibit any discussion of gender identity in kindergarten through third grade classrooms under the false claim that to have any conversation whatsoever sexualizes the children. The problem hinges on what constitutes instruction. No teacher sets out to offer instruction on how to be or become a member of the LGBTQ plus community. No one. This is not about indoctrination. It is about inclusion. If a child with two same-sex parents has the opportunity to read a book about a family with same-sex parents, it bolsters that child's sense that they are not alone. Seeing oneself in this light can be life-affirming. According to a survey released in 2022 by the Trevor Project, nearly half of all LGBTQ plus youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. Ultimately, marginalized youth are at higher risk for depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts when they are stigmatized or ostracized by the broader community. Active silencing or erasure of the LGBTQ plus perspective from community conversation undermines a child's ability to see themselves as a valued member in that community. Such isolation can have deadly consequences and strengthens existing social divisions that foster bullying and other abuses. If government silencing to perpetuate systemic inequality can be understood as a violation of our democratic values, it's not hard to look at compelled speech as its evil twin equivalent, HF9, 
sets out to do just that. The proposed bill's third point reads, quote, Each school district is prohibited from willfully withholding information or knowingly giving false information to the parent or guardian of a student regarding the student's gender identity or intention to transition, unquote. In essence, legislators will require teachers to tell parents if they know or suspect that their child is wrestling with gender identity issues. If all homes were harmonious and unconditionally supportive of LGBTQ plus children, this might not cause damage. They're not. The evidence of HF9 alone indicates that some children feel safer confiding in a trusted teacher or counselor before their own parents when it comes to sexual orientation or gender identity. We need only look at the comparatively far higher rates of homelessness among LGBTQ plus youth to understand that compulsory outing of young people's sexuality and gender identity can have dire consequences. According to the National Network for Youth, quote, family conflict is the primary cause of homelessness for LGBTQ plus youth, which is disproportionately due to a lack of acceptance by family members of a youth's sexual orientation or gender identity. Iowa's GOP legislators have privileged these three initiatives among their top goals for the coming year. Their enactment will cause irreparable damage to our LGBTQ plus communities, especially youth, and severely limit Iowans' ability to say what is on their minds or not as they see fit. To advance society, Communities need an opportunity to engage in issues openly without fear of reprisal or coercion. These proposals actively shut down that engagement. Now we turn to the sports page. Bengals win in snowy Buffalo to earn rematch with the Chiefs. This story comes to us by way of the Associated Press. Dateline, Orchard Park, New York. Joe Burrow threw two touchdown passes. Cincinnati's defense swarmed Josh Allen on a snow-slicked field, and the Bengals advanced to their second straight AFC Championship game with a 27-10 win over the Buffalo Bills on Sunday. DeMar Hamlin's inspirational presence while watching the game from an end-zone suite was not enough to spark the Bills in a rematch of a regular season game that was canceled on January 2nd when the Bills' safety went into cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated on the field in Cincinnati. Instead, it was Joe Cool showing poise while playing in a persistent snowfall. Burrow completed his first nine passes for 105 yards in leading Cincinnati to a 14-0 lead after its first two possessions. Jamar Chase opened the scoring with a 28-yard touchdown catch at 3 minutes 20 seconds into the game, followed by Burrow's 15-yard touchdown throw to Hayden Hurst eight minutes later. Joe Maxson scored on a one-yard run, and Evan McPherson made field goals from 20 and 28 yards in a game the Bengals never trailed. Cincinnati advanced to consecutive AFC championship games for the first time in franchise history, and will again travel to play Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Bengals beat the Chiefs 
27-24, to advance to last year's Super Bowl, which they lost to the Los Angeles Rams. Quote, it's going to be a fun one, said Burrow, who went 23 of 36 for 242 yards. Two of the top guys in the league, two of the top teams in the league, great defenses, great overall teams, great coaches, unquote. Cincinnati has won the past three meetings against Kansas City, including a 27-24 victory last month. The Chiefs are making their fifth straight appearance in the AFC Championship game following a 27-20 win over Jacksonville on Saturday. The Bills' playoff run ended in the divisional round for a second straight season, including a 42-36 overtime loss to Kansas City last year. Had Buffalo defeated Cincinnati, the AFC Championship would have been held at Atlanta next weekend because the Bills, 13-3, finished the season a half a game behind the Chiefs, 14-3, after their game against Cincinnati was canceled. Quote, better send those refunds, Burrow said, referring to Bills and Chiefs fans. The Bengals mixed in their running attack to keep the Bills off balance in the first half in which Cincinnati outgained Buffalo in total yards by a margin of 274 to 135 and 412 to 325 overall. Maxson's 105 yards rushing alone were one short of how many the Bengals combined in their past two games, both against Baltimore. Quote, domination from start to finish, Burrow added. That's what we experienced. Job's not finished. The Bengals held one of the NFL's top offenses to season-low 10 points, and the unit got a chance to celebrate by making snow angels in the end zone after Cam Taylor Britt intercepted Allen's attempt at a goal line to essentially end the game with 62 seconds remaining. Allen finished 25 of 42 for 265 yards. Quote, they came out, they played hard, Allen said. We just didn't have it today, unquote. It was a dud of an outing for a Bills team that opened the season with Super Bowl aspirations and eventually ran out of emotional and physical gas. Aside from the stunning sight of Hamlin's collapse, the Bills had their schedule twice disrupted by severe winter storms. Injuries also played an issue. The Bills' pass rush, missing Van Maur since he sustained a season-ending knee injury in November, generated very little pressure against the Bengals' offensive line, missing three starters due to injuries. Quote, we were expecting their best punch, and they came out and punched us, Ellen said. Hamlin was whisked into the stadium in a security vehicle and led directly into the Bills' locker room about an hour before kickoff. He was later joined by his mother, Nana, and younger brother, Demir. He watched the game from a suite in one end zone and was pictured on the video board at the two-minute warning in the first half, with Cincinnati facing second and goal at Buffalo's five. Now we return to local news from the Courier. Man arrested after car chase through Cedar Valley. Story filed by Donald Promnitz. Dateline is Cedar Falls. A man was taken into custody following a late-night chase that involved multiple agencies. At 11.35 p.m. Saturday, Blackhawk County Dispatch 
received reports of a reckless driver on University Avenue in Cedar Falls. As information was being relayed from dispatch, the driver reportedly sped past a Cedar Falls police officer. The officer attempted to make a traffic stop, but the driver refused to pull over, proceeding southbound on Iowa Highway 58 and then eastbound on U.S. Highway 20. Waterloo Police, Hudson Police, and Blackhawk County Sheriff's deputies were called to assist in the pursuit as the suspect, later identified as 32-year-old Brandon Blair Choate, continued southbound on Ansboro Avenue, eastbound on Schrock Road, and then southbound again on Dysart Road. Officers deployed tire deflation devices to disable the vehicle. Choate then reportedly pulled into an address on the 8400 block of Dysart Road before attempting to take off again and striking three patrol vehicles, causing minor damage. Choate then exited the vehicle and was arrested. Choate was booked in Blackhawk County Jail on charges of eluding, operating while intoxicated for a third or subsequent time, driving while barred, driving with a revoked license, and interference with official acts. No one was injured in the pursuit. Next is an article filed by the Associated Press, Gunman Kills 10 Near Lunar New Year's Fest in California. Dateline is Monterey Park, California. A gunman killed 10 people at a ballroom dance studio amid Lunar New Year celebrations and then may have tried but failed to target a second dance hall, authorities said Sunday. An urgent search was underway across Los Angeles area for the suspect. L.A. County Sheriff Robert Luna said the shooting at the Star Ballroom Dance Studio in Monterey Park left five women and five men dead and wounded another ten people. Then, 20 to 30 minutes later, a man with a gun entered the Lalai Ballroom in nearby Alhambra. Luna said it's still unclear whether the events were connected. The incident in Alhambra, quote, may be related, Luna said. We're not quite there yet, but it's definitely on our radar screen, unquote. The suspect in both cases was described as an Asian male. He entered the Alhambra club with a gun, and people wrestled the weapon away from him before he fled, Luna said. By midday, police had surrounded a white van in a parking lot. Hours earlier, Luna said authorities were looking for a white van after witnesses reported seeing the suspect flee from Alhambra in such a vehicle. Quote, we believe there is a person inside of that vehicle. We don't know their condition, but we're going to handle that in the safest manner that we possibly can and try to identify that person. Could it be our suspect? Possibly, Luna said. The sheriff declined to say what type of gun was recovered at Alhambra. He said investigators believe the gun used in Monterey Park was not an assault rifle. The shooting and manhunt sent a wave of fear through Asian American communities in the Los Angeles area and cast a shadow over Lunar New Year's festivities around the country. Other cities sent extra F officers to watch over the celebrations. The massacre was the nation's fifth mass killing this month. It was also the deadliest attack since May 24th, when 21 people were killed in an elementary school 
in Uvalde, Texas. Monterey Park is a city of about 60,000 people on the eastern edge of Los Angeles and is composed mostly of Asian immigrants from China or first-generation Asian American. Now, reading from the briefings column, Lunar New Year. People across China rang in the year of the rabbit on Sunday with large family gatherings and crowds visiting temples after the government lifted its strict zero-COVID policy, marking the biggest Lunar New Year celebration since the pandemic began three years ago. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 23rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading for this newspaper or the others around Iowa that you read on our website, iowaradioreading.org, and you can do that at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.